This is Chris. Welcome to episode 9 of Generation X Lapsed, where we are covering the final issue of Generation X Volume 2 today. But uh, it's not the end of the series, of course. We have, uh, you remember Marvel went to the legacy numbering for that well-thought-out and uh, not-at-all-half-assed initiative to show us all that uh, they cared about the history and the legacy of these characters and so we will get an almighty three issues of legacy-numbered uh, Generation X to follow this one. But uh, today, let's uh, get into the discussion here. This is Generation X Volume 2, number 9 of 9, February 2018 cover day, written by Christina Strain, with art by Emil Carpina. Colors Felipe Sobrairo, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, does, um, Etno designs here, this, that's the other show. Edits, Robinson, Shan, Panizia, Alonzo, cover price $4, on sale November 22nd, 2017. Now, as usual, we start with our full-page spread of roll call and cred, and our characters include Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. And we open... In New York City, where our uh, probably never-to-be-called Gen X kids are digging through the wreckage left in the wake of Kid Krakoa's trek underground. Now, Quentin Quire's kind of taken point on this, whether anybody likes it or not, so I guess the Omega will not be denied. Off to the side, uh, Nature Girl is trying to convince iBoy that a random opossum would be the perfect babysitter for little Shogo. Which, well, um... If you've been listening up to this point, you all know how I feel about Nature Girl. Um, what's worse, iBoy decides to go ahead and leave the baby with the little critter. Our camera then pans out, and we get a better look at the wreckage in the city, and uh, we even get to see some pieces of X-Men wallpaper in uh, Mercury, Shock Girl, and Grey Malkin. Now, as Quentin is lifting up bits and bobs of concrete and whatnot, Chamber continues to dig below. Gotta remember, he might just have the hot pants for Jubilee at this point and would probably prefer her not to die. He's probably, you know, he'd also like to say Roxy, probably, uh, but you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Paige rushes over to get a sit rep after having called into Kitty at the Institute. And I could have sworn this was like all going down right outside her office, so she should have been able to see it. Either that, or the office was at the Institute, like the caption told us last issue. I don't know, let's just move on. Jono tells Paige that he's not worried about whether or not Jubilee survived, because, well, he's sure she did. 
What he's actually worried about is the fact that he's unsure whether or not she had breakfast. Which, I mean, she is a vampire, and that might not bode well for Roxy if you uh, catch his meaning there. We get a scene shift from here. We're going to the down below, where Call Me Jubes has a rag made out of Roxy's right sleeve clenched betwixt her fangs. Roxy then jerks her off the rebar that she was impaled on last issue. Jubilee, though in great amounts of pain, will survive. Roxy then leads them through the tunnels by the light on the back of her iPhone. Back topside, Quentin, in his haste, topples over a wall on top of Mercury. In fairness to Quentin, he probably didn't even realize she was there. I mean, when was the last time you thought about Mercury? I know it's been ages for me. Now, Lynn, Nature Girl, approaches her mark on the stage in order to give her line of dialogue, which alludes to the possibility that a certain gray-haired POV character may have also been covered in debris due to Quentin's boner. Benji freaks the F out, as you might imagine, and uh, begins digging through the wreckage to find his would-be bow. Choirs all screw this and just lets out a tremendous burst of pink energy, which more or less clears the board. And probably topples like half the buildings in the city as well, but eh, we don't got time for that. We'll just let the Avengers uh, sort that stuff out. Benji locates Nathaniel, who's just sitting there. Um, He's bleeding from the head. Uh, Benji uses his sleeve to cover Nate's wound. Nate tells him not to worry, he's okay, and also that uh, Benji's ruining his leather jacket by trying to clot his blood. Benji doesn't care, he just wants Nate to be okay. Jono walks over and suggests that the, uh, well, less useful young mutants just head back to the Institute where they won't be in the way. Because there were only two of their numbers still missing, uh, Jubilee and Roxy, of course. And I guess that means that there were zero human casualties after a city block in Manhattan in the middle of the day fell into itself. Uh, well, we're on that thought, where in the hell are the police? Emergency services? Fire engines? Where, where, I mean... Uh, The city of New York is fine just letting a bunch of weirdo teenagers pick over the wreckage? Okay, anyway. At this point, iBoy decides to step up to his mark on the stage to deliver his line. Now, it's here that he reveals that he recently figured out that his many, 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 many eyes give him the ability to see through things. Lynn clarifies that for the, uh, you know, kids in the back of the classroom here, uh, Trevor can see through walls, clothes, and skin. She thankfully doesn't bring up the fact that Trev is obsessed with Jono's wiener. Back underground, Jubilee and Bling make their way to the subway. They happen across one of M-Plate's Morlock meals, likely the last one who we saw dragged in by DOA last issue, since he's, you know, still alive. Roxy faints. She's uh, experiencing a panic attack, realizing that uh, if this Morlock meal is still moving, that means that Monet is probably still nearby. Jubilee tells her not to worry, because if Monet were in the vicinity, you'd probably be able to smell her Chanel number no. 5. She also suggests that Monet's too smart to just attack them directly, and then realizes that, uh, well, if that's truly the case, maybe we should skedaddle all the same. Now, Roxy helps walk the Morlock out, and Jubilee tells her she did a great job today, which is kind of a kissing-your-sister bit of praise at best, considering... Um, how ungreat Roxy actually did. 
As the girls leave, we see M Plate and DOA looking on. DOA is surprised that M is just letting them leave, to which we learn that, indeed, he, she, it has a plan. Elsewhere, Jono, Paige, Mercury, and Nature Girl are using iBoy's X-ray vision to help guide them through the collapsing tunnels. Trevor, by the way, has rescued Shogo from the Apossum Mama, and uh, this will be vital to the next scene, and I can't believe I'm saying that without a tinge of sarcasm. Trevor spots their friends, but they're a level further down. Now, Jono can't risk blasting down without, uh, you know, the possibility of crushing them under rubble. And so, Paige tears off her skin to become something a bit more sturdy. And, well, she then lifts a single slab of fallen concrete, and bada-bing, bada-boom, they're reunited with Jubilee, Bling, and uh, this Morlock meat. Well, Bling and the meat, anyway, because Jubilee... She's off to the side, and she has impaled her own hand on an exposed piece of rebar in order to drink her own blood. I didn't know that's how vampirism worked, but uh, then again, I, uh, I don't know much about vampires, besides the fact that they bore me. Jono is quick to offer up his own arm for her to suck on, which, again, I don't know that that's how it worked. Um, like, doesn't he risk... Be, does, does, does he have to be... Uh, Bit in the jugular to become a vampire, or can they be bitten anyway? I, I don't know. And so, Jubilee sucks it, uh, just as Trevor and Shogo saunter up. And so, Shogo sees his mother feasting on blood, with a bunch of the red stuff dripping from her chin. Uh, Shogo does call her mommy, by the way, which is something he's seemingly forgotten to do in our current day post Hoxpox books. Then again, maybe this was Mora's ninth life, where Shogo could speak. Who knows? Now, Shogo, upon seeing his mommy in such a creepy state, bursts into tears, as one might imagine. Later, at the Xavier Institute of Game Genie Coding, Needlepoint, and Balloon Animal Sciences, Benji is preparing for a date night with Nathaniel. And what I mean by that is he's carrying an armful of salty snacks into a room so they can watch a pretentious indie flick together. Now, he passes Quentin in the hallway, who says he's on his way to the laundry room. Quentin claims that there's only so many times one can wear their own underwear inside out, which is gross. Um, Inside, we join Nate and Benji, who finally get the opportunity to explain their hot-panted feelings toward one another. But this is a love not to be. You see, Nate, due to his roguish powers, can't allow himself to get too close to anyone else because... Well, a relationship with him is a rather dicey proposition here. He knows what people are thinking, right? And so a crestfallen Benji, he says he understands. Now we wrap up with Lynn petting the opossum mama in a tree, and she observes Quentin and Krakoa leaving together. So it looks like QQ is leaving the school forever. Or until next issue, I guess, whichever comes first. And that is it the final issue of Generation X Volume 2. So next up, back to Volume 1 and our legacy numbering, and uh, I tell you what, I can't wait to see the Massachusetts Academy again. (sighs) No, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I know it's still going to be the Volume 2 cast. We'll make the best of it when we get there. But let's talk about this this climactic ending to the uh, second volume of Generation X here. Um... As I've mentioned over the past several episodes here, the series is growing on me, and this uh, this issue is no exception to that uh, to that statement. Um, while I feel it was um, 
a bit weaker than the ones we've seen over the past uh, couple of shows, it's still like worlds better than the, the opening two or three issues were. Um, that said, uh, there are still things that it's hard not to see when you're reading this here. Um, it's very formulaic um, in that, I mean, I've, I've made allusions to it uh, over the past several shows here. These, uh, we have these X-Men wallpaper characters, right? We got these characters that just are, are there, you know, and uh, occasionally they'll realize, oh, I have a line. And just like a high school play, they step up to where their, their mark is on the stage and they deliver their one line. And then they go away. Or they just go back to being background. I I mean, and it's hard not to notice that now that I've noticed it. Because had I not noticed it, I probably wouldn't be, uh, you know, sharing with you all. And being like, wow, this is really, you know, stilted feeling here. This feels very unnatural. It's like, why is a, why is a blindfold here? Oh, she's here to give her one line of dialogue and then bugger off to the to the back of the room again. It's hard not to notice it when it's... Just so apparent And, and you know, credit where it's due I'm glad that Strain is uh, using some of these lesser used characters, right? Giving lines of dialogue to characters who probably hadn't had a line of dialogue in Potentially years at this point The way uh, some of these characters have been presented or, or not presented So credit where it's due It's nice to see some characters getting, getting a little bit of a rub But uh, at the same time, it just feels so manufactured Um... Another thing that really stood out to me, and I did mention this during the synopsis, is that we had a uh, something that is tantamount to a a disaster, right? Uh, I don't know if it would be a national emergency, but I mean, the city of New York is kind of a kind of one of the major vessels of the United States here, and when a neighborhood, or not even a neighborhood, but a like a commercial area, a historical area, we had the museum there, when it collapses onto itself. No police, no uh, emergency services. Somehow, these kids from the Xavier School are just able to. There's no. There's no yellow tape. <laughs> there's no flares. There's nothing keeping them from just digging through rubble, and and they're not getting any help from any of the emergency services people. How does that make sense? Especially when we consider the like the haphazard way. That they're uh, that they're doing this here. We've got Quentin knocking walls on top of people, and Husk just ripping you know layers of earth away. We have Chamber blowing stuff up. Seems like uh, maybe the city would want to get involved, or maybe at least tell them to back off until they you know until they come up with a plan of how to how to approach this. I don't know. It's just one of those things that's hard not to uh, not to pay attention to. Um, and I mean, again, this is New York City, right? And there are a lot of superheroes in New York City, right? I'm pretty sure like 80% of the Marvel Universe happens there. So no Avengers, no Spider-Man, no remnants of the Fantastic Four. Very, very strange that uh, it's just left, not even, you know, not even other X-Men. It's just these goofball kids who are looked at as being so useless that they'll never actually make it to the X-Men squad, right? They're just going to be the ones who need to be given life training so they can figure out how to blend into society uh, once they can control their powers. Uh, They're the ones in charge of disaster relief. And I don't know. (laughs) Very, very bizarre. Uh, Let's go underground. Um, Roxy and Jubilee... 
Now, Jubilee, uh, I've talked about how I don't find her to be a, a very credible leader at this point, um, but her pep talk to Roxy was uh, was was well taken. I, I think that was a, a, a step in the direction of maturity for both characters, in that, uh, you know, Roxy, I mentioned it last episode, that she uh, is trying to plead her case that she should be a, you know, first ballot contender to for membership on the X-Men, but... When the chips all fell, she just kind of stood there. She freaked out. She she didn't so much suffer a panic attack last issue. She just stood there, let Jubilee and uh, Jono like take care of everything while she just kind of watched. And here during this issue, she has uh, she suffers a panic attack, in which she uh, you know she's overwhelmed. Um, the thought that uh, Monet or M Plate is nearby is too much for her to handle, and she. Uh, all the air rushes out and she faints, and I mean that's a that is a you know a natural reaction, especially with her uh, with her past trauma. It's a, it certainly stands to reason that she would suffer some sort of a panic attack, if for no other reason than as a defense mechanism, so she doesn't have to deal with it. She passes out, and so Jubilee tells her what a good job she did, and Bling knows that she you know she, this is kissing her sister, right? This is not. This is just something Jubilee saying to be nice, and I think that the realization of that, because I mean, she even brings up, you know, I just, I just had a panic attack. I, I was useless. What did I? I couldn't, I couldn't help anybody. And uh, just knowing that Jubilee cares enough about her that she would, maybe not so much lie to her, but at least bolster her up a little bit, try to improve her confidence enough to where she. Maybe next time around we'll be able to act, we'll be able to react, we'll be more functional in a high-stress situation. I think Roxy is able to take a you know, long look into herself and realize, you know, okay, I'm valued here. Because I think that's a big part of Roxy's issue throughout this volume is that she feels like she's not valued. She talked either last issue or the one before that. About having the same powers as Emma Frost Or some Emma Frost's secondary mutation And wonders why that's not enough So she's got this like inferiority thing And just a feeling like she's been held down And is just disrespected And here Jubilee goes out for a way To say some kind words to her Which hopefully will, uh, you know, set in And uh, will help both characters grow Jubilee grow as a mentor And Bling grow as uh, someone who knows she still has a lot to learn before she can make any claims to being something that uh, perhaps she isn't and perhaps she never will be. Well, if nothing else, this uh, hopefully got her ready for her extended stint as a fallen angel in <laughs> the Dawn of X. Oh, boy. Uh, we got Benji. We got Nathaniel. We have their love that cannot be. Um, this is... Uh, I mean, this feels so much like any time Rogue is in a, uh, or is potentially, or getting close to being in a relationship. It's always, you know, I can't get too close to people. I can't get too close to people for fear that uh, I'm gonna know too much. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take from you. I'm gonna hurt you. And Nathaniel here, he's got those similar um, worries, and I think it stands to reason that he should because. All it takes is a touch, and he knows exactly what anybody's thinking and what anybody's experienced, and uh, that puts him at an advantage as well as a disadvantage because he doesn't know how he can tell when someone's lying. He can tell when someone's not being genuine. He can he can figure 
he, in a way, he can almost control behavior because the person who's with him knows that he can read them. And so they're going to uh, maybe engage in a little impression management, right? Changing their, their frame of mind, changing their behaviors, lying to themselves perhaps so they can get away with uh, not, not unintentionally hurting Nathaniel or, or giving, him, giving him more information than he needs to know. And in, in a way, Nathaniel's a very tragic character. I mean, in many ways, he's a very tragic character. Like I said, it's uh, just like Rogue back in the day. But that said, I, I thought uh, this was a really good scene here because you can tell that, uh, that both boys are, they are into one another. Right? They do have feelings for one another, they care for one another, but they know that, at least for now, I mean, that could change next issue, but at least for now that uh, this is not something they can pursue, and it's uh, pretty heartbreaking. I mean, we don't know, or I don't know, much about Benji, and so far we've read every single Nathaniel Carver appearance, so we don't know much about him either. So we don't know about past relationships, or even if there were any. So for both of them, this might be the first time they're coming to coming to terms with an attraction or, or looking to pursue a relationship or have an urge to be in a relationship. We just don't know, or at least I don't know. Uh, this, this might be made plain elsewhere, but uh, for now, I mean, for all I know, this might be their first, uh, you know, romantic entanglement. And the fact that it's, at least at this point, not to be, it kind of sucks, doesn't it? But you can see why they're going to do it this way. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. Because, I mean, we got three issues left to go. They're not just going to drop this. This is going to definitely continue. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it uh, all works out. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Um, if you agree, disagree, have any comments or anything, please feel free to hit me up. You can find me several different ways. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics. Instagram at 90sXmen, and you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen, having a lot of fun conversations in there. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. It's available anywhere you find noise on the internet. And if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show and maybe tell a friend or two. It would really, really mean the world to me. Speaking of which, it means the world to me that you would spend a little bit of your day with me today. And so I thank you so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Feeling